Disney Sun. Hope you're excited for uh, Super Pets Help Today with Pac Man Review Podcast. Uh, before we start, there is one thing I kind of like sort of forgot uh, to mention, but it was also kind of implied, uh, and it's pretty basic. But there's this idea that if, like, you know, I have um, my uh, my aunt, for example, she bought like a ton of Tesla uh, when it was like seventy or eighty bucks before the recent split, which is the equivalent of like basically twenty bucks a share um, versus the current like I don't know five hundred or so. Um, and there's this really obvious example of like if someone buys a stock at twenty bucks and it goes to like four hundred, say, um, like if you sell it at four hundred, and then someone else buys it at four hundred, uh, and then it like goes to five hundred, like you theoretically like missed out on some money, but you still made an incredibly large amount of money. So it's not like a zero sum thing because you made a ton of money. Uh, similarly, if you like sort of stock at five hundred and it goes to I don't know a hundred. And then you exit it, and then it goes bankrupt. Like you, you know, you miss out on some of it for sure. And the, but it's not like a zero sum thing because you still have the vast bulk of it. And so the the thing where this really starts to come to an effect is if you buy at say twenty, and then it goes to two hundred, and say that it goes from two hundred to one eighty, and you sell it one eighty, and then the person, the other person, buys it at one eighty or whatever, right? Uh, and then it goes up a bunch to say two fifty, uh, and they make a bunch of money, and you like didn't have their money, but it's not like you lost money selling it to them, right? Like you still lock in your profit, uh, and that's one important factor that's going to come in, and and really we're going to look a lot in this episode about the idea of paper value, um, and also hedge paper value versus actual performance of an asset, uh, and of course performance of an overarching portfolio. Uh, and a couple of little nuanced concepts like that uh, that really just prove something I've been hearing a lot lately. So anyway, with that said, I'm going to get much more into detail once the episode starts. I just kind of had a caveat here I wanted to put beforehand. So yeah, thank you guys so much, and I'll see you in just a sec. So the big question is this. How do investors like us who don't have a PhD in finance earn millions to start investing? How do we grow our bank accounts to build real savings and retirements and yet still have the time to do what we really love? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hey guys, it's John Oak driving in awesome, awesome, awesome day. I uh, had a, a pretty uh, crazy, crazy thing happen today. I've been uh, following, um, let's see, what was it? Um, I always forget the tickers. Odd US for, there's been this nice setup for a week or so. And uh, God, I learned this lesson today. It was the worst thing ever. I've been following this thing for such a extended period of time and uh i've done nothing for the past couple of days but just stare at australian dollar and uh you know i go to lunch with my dad at one thirty. i get back and the setup i've been waiting for it completed when i was gone and i totally freaking missed it i felt so silly and dumb and uh i don't know just kind of ranting i kind of sad about it i lost like well i mean i missed out on like 40 grand which honestly kind of sucks um so i'm just kind of sitting up thinking about that thinking about priorities and all and uh while i was doing that this uh epiphany kind of came to me um about something that i hear and i had heard uh very very recently um that i hear all the time and it's like literally the weirdest thing i've ever heard it's on par in terms of intelligence level uh as stuff like you can't beat the market or uh you know, the market is efficient. It's like that kind of level of, um, you know, understanding of financial markets. And, uh, and what it is, is that, you know, the market is a zero-sum game. And 
like I like it may like that makes no sense whatsoever and it's like utterly false and it's insanely stupid uh and yet there are a lot of people that say it and I, I just I could never I figure out why like you trade for like three days and it's like oh yeah I guess that's how it works but it's like so many people don't even know uh which I think is crazy so I want to um I want to talk about that today uh, just to kind of clear it up, I know some of you might be starting out, uh, or maybe some of you uh, started very, very recently. And anyway, I think it's a really great and, and very important thing to clear up because what it does is it allows you to go from a scarcity mindset of, you know, you making money comes from other people losing money, which is not true in any means of that being a thing. Uh, and instead transition into an abundance mindset where you realize that there are literally trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in financial markets and uh, there are trillions of dollars being created uh, and generated uh, you know all of the time and so there is a complete and total abundance of money if you think about it in terms of market growth you know the whole market average rate of growth over the past you know uh, century or so uh, is what like 10 a little over 10 percent so like on average, you know, that's 10% growth in a trillion dollar market. That's trillions of dollars on average generated nowadays every single year just from appreciation of assets. And so it's like uh, like essentially generating value out of thin air, which turns into its equivalent in money. And that's only further supported nowadays by the massive printing of dollars from the Fed, which therefore, you know, it inflates asset prices just by nature of... Uh, how uh, inflation works when central governments print money. Um, and so anyway, coming back to our, our topic, this idea of, and this, this silly, silly idea that, you know, the market is zero-sum game, your trades are zero-sum game, blah, blah, blah. Um, and even I thought this when I first started trading uh, uh, leveraged f uh, currency futures. I was like, oh, okay, this is er uh, a lot of times with... Um, when I was starting out, I was, I was trading with CFD brokers uh, in terms of stocks and in currency futures. So um, with those guys, uh, you basically trade against a central um, broker that sells contracts. And there are some versions of uh, CFDs where you essentially risk all of your capital with an upside gain of about 60 to 80 percent. Um, and in those scenarios, you're like basically going to like um, I don't want to say casino because it's not the same as that, uh, but it's very similar in terms of you'll make like a bet, like, a, a you know, a currency or whatever is going to be up or down, you know, in the up or down. And like, that's it, like up or down in the next hour or maybe sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 30 seconds, uh, sometimes it's 15 minutes, sometimes it's 30 minutes, like that kind of stuff is to an extent, uh, uh, a zero-sum game in the sense that um, in the long term with most, 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 not all of it, but with most of those kinds of contracts for difference, um, it is, uh, it's just exceptionally hard to succeed. <coughs> because um, it removes, <coughs> excuse me, was one of the most important parts of good trading, <coughs> it, which is a high risk reward ratio. And instead, it gives you a 0.6 to 1 risk reward ratio, which is really, really bad, <coughs> or uh, something around those parts. 
And with the 50-50 trade, you know, in the long term, that's not going to do very well. What I'm talking about is general, actual open market trading where you're not like playing some silly game with a, a central broker. You're not uh, doing some crazy CFD. Most CFDs are illegal in America anyway. Um, but you're not, you're not, you know, playing some uh, asset that's designed inherently to... Uh, make a broker money and take it from you. Instead, what I'm talking about is just any generally traded public security, like you know a stock or an option or or a currency or whatever. And that's where I hear this phrase a lot. People saying, you know, it's a zero sum game. Oh, if I buy a stock at twenty and it goes to thirty, then the guy that sold it to me, you know, missed out on money. Maybe he was short. Maybe they lost money. Um, or similarly with currencies, you know, you sell the uh, Australian dollar, for example, or I bought the Australian dollar. So say the guy who sold it to me had to sell short maybe, um, or maybe he just sold it and then he lost out on all the money when it went up. Um, so you, you hear that argument a lot. And at the end of the day, like that's a ridiculous argument that makes literally no sense. So let me walk you through an example, just one example where it makes literally no sense. Um, so first of all, hedge funds started in the 20s, I believe, somewhere around that, 30s. Uh, yeah, the 30s. So... The whole idea behind it was, you know, you would have investments and then you'd also have other investments that hedged against the risk of those investments. And you accept that you'll have a lower return in exchange for decreased downside volatility, etc. And that was the basic idea when hedge funds started. And all the people really did was buy gold mostly and then buy uh, indices. And they understood going into it that they were going to lose money on gold a good chunk of the time. Uh, and they were cool with that because it would offset when the market went up versus because the gold, you know, historically generally kind of goes up when the market goes down. And, and we've seen that recently. So they were like totally cool with losing money on gold because they knew that this other part of their portfolio would do better. And at the same time, they knew it was decreasing their uh, volatility and increasing their sharp ratio. So that's one example where you look at one side of the trade, if you look at only the gold side of the trade, it's like, wow, this is stupid. I'm selling them gold and they're buying it and the price is going down. There must be like losing tons of money. But in reality, it's part of an overall strategy to reduce volatility and they're actually crushing it in the market. Now that's one very, very basic example uh, of using it in terms of a diversified portfolio. Now it's a little bit silly and nowadays it's a little bit... um. At least for me, it's not like something I would like to do. Like I would rather just pick assets that I know are going to do well. Um, like recently, you know, I shorted the market in, in February and, and was in gold earlier before that. And um, so that's kind of more so what I, I do now. But but that's just one example. So here's another example. Okay, let's say uh, stocks at 50 and uh, I sell. I've been holding shares since 30 or, you know, whatever. And I sell at 50 and... <coughs> Say some dude buys it, okay? Now, here's really one of the most important things to realize about any trade, and it's that, like, you don't have to hold the trade forever. So if the person who buys it for me at 50, you know, sets a stop loss at 49, and then they get stopped out of the trade, like, they have limited downside if they're using a stop loss. Like, it's not a big deal, right? Well, let's say for argument's sake that they don't get stopped out at 49 or they just keep holding it or, you know, whatever, right? Um, and let's say it goes down, it goes down, it goes down, it goes down, and it goes down all the way to, I don't know, 40, okay? So they bought it at 50 and it went down to 40. 
On paper, let's say they lose money on that part of the trade. But similarly, let's say they were only buying the stock to offset some of the risk on, say, out-of-the-money puts. Uh, or maybe they were selling the call, so they sold covered calls. So maybe they got you know five, seven bucks for call premiums with high volatility, or maybe they made uh, 80, 90, 150% on puts, and they just had the underlying stock as, uh, as kind of an insurance in case it went up, and the puts were really the play they wanted to make. That's a very common thing to happen uh, when you have maybe less, because what it does is it removes volatility Instead of making just a naked call sale or instead of making just a naked put buy, um, you can re you reduce a lot of the volatility by buying the underlying stock. So it looks like you lose money on part of the trade, but in reality, your overall gain is massive, right? And that doesn't even begin to account for the fact that you can always, always, always stop out of a trade if it's not going your way. And uh have someone else with a different perspective on the market come in and take that order or even just a market maker take that order that's a really important part too you have to realize a vast bulk of trades aren't actually going to like people they're going to market makers right and they're being held for a matter of seconds often or maybe a couple minutes and so as you have these flips between bids and asks and all um i guess spreads are maybe one of those gray areas but um, I think everybody benefits from spreads because, <clears throat> at least in most markets, you can always buy the bid and sell the ask. So I wouldn't say that's a, a huge directional bias in terms of a zero-sum game. <clears throat> but the point is that there's always a lot of different ways to frame your trades so that even if you have a quote-unquote losing trade, it like isn't a losing trade. Um, and similarly, it's not fair to think of you selling someone a stock for a huge profit as a loss. Like, for instance... Um, uh, let's see. I think this was with, yeah, with uh, AMD. So I bought AMD at like 10 or so, maybe 9, 8, something like that. I don't know, maybe a little bit of it in the low teens. Um, and then I went and I sold a ton of it at 35 when they had this huge spike up. Uh, or maybe it was 32, right? And so they, they spike up to 32 and then they drop down back to 20 and I kind of buy some more back, half the additional position, which had already tripled. Um, and then the thing runs up to like 80, you know? So do you think that the person that bought it at 35 would be pissed when it dropped down to 20? Like, uh, yeah, sure they would. But are they going to stay pissed when it goes to 80? Like, no, right? So like you have to look at time frame too because a lot of times what people see as a losing trade like isn't. A uh, great example of this, my... <laughs> I feel so bad and I, I, I'm so sad talking about this because a lot of people I know that... um. You know, bubbles are just such an interesting topic, and I would love to do a whole episode on bubbles. Um, especially, I think I, I think I did an episode earlier on. Uh, one of the first episodes I did was on the emotions of the, uh, the Bitcoin bubble of 17, um, and that's a real good one. So I would go back to the start and listen to that. Or maybe if it's not on the podcast, go to YouTube and listen to that. That's, um, but anyway, uh, so then anyway, there's a lot of really uh, incredible emotions going on uh, back then. I remember my dad, he, uh, you know, he wanted to get into crypto and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll help you out. Um, I am not going to say no to a client. So I, uh, so anyway, he buys Bitcoin at, uh, 13, 12, uh, sorry, 12,000, 13,000. Uh, and for like the past two and a half or so years, it's been like, uh, you know, in the red, uh, down 80% at, or, uh, some near 80%, 70% at one point. Um, in terms of his position. 
And uh, now, you know, it's just starting to climb back up at 13.5 now. Who knows what it'll be when you're listening to this. Uh, 13,500. So he's over cost basis and out netting a profit. So like in the short term, it was like a really, really bad investment. And whoever sold it to him, like, you know, did a good job selling. Uh, but in the long term, it's, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, would you look at that? Um, same thing if you look at the people that sold Amazon at its peak in 2000 versus what it's worth now, like you might have had to wait a decade and a half but if you did wait a decade and a half, even if you bought at the absolute worst time possible, when people would have said that you have lost a ton of money, it, you know, that's still your, your 10xing, 100xing uh, from, from those peaks. And so a lot of it comes down to perspective. And that's basically the gist of what I want to come to you with today is that the market is not a zero-sum game. It all just depends on your perspective. That is an excuse to not perform well. And it's a stupid one at that. It literally makes no sense, especially when you can play either side of a market and make money when stocks go up or down on leverage or without it. It like is just incredibly dumb. I, I it's just really crazy. So uh, that's my uh, that's my little thing today. I hope you guys um, had some cool realizations today. I hope it maybe opened up your eyes to a couple of ways to mitigate risk in your portfolio if that's what you're all about. Um, I hope you have a uh, really, really awesome day and uh, go out there, apply it, absolutely crush it, and I'll uh, see you guys later. Oh, something kind of interesting. I have this one client. They uh, All they do is sell puts um, and calls, calls and puts. They sell calls and puts every single day on a weekly time frame. They have a 98% success rate. Um, and of course, that means it's going to be 2% of their trades where uh, they lose uh, you know, a decent chunk of change. Um, and on those investments, it's like, oh, well, look at that. You know, they're, the market is, um, you know, they're taking, the market takes money from them. Oh, zero sum. But at the end of the day, when you have an effective trading strategy, dude makes like, I, I, I don't know like how much, how much detail I want to go into, but I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't know, six figures. I mean, it's a lot of money. Um, and I don't know, like once you have effective trading strategies, it like literally becomes stupid to think that, that it's a zero sum game because like it's not, uh, but uh, I, I don't know, it's just something that, that came to mind and, and something I thought of uh, at first was like, you know, if it really is like a zero sum, then that mean would mean that everyone that's successful is alienating everyone that's not successful if it's a one-to-one ratio of success to unsuccessful, and thereby in the long term, i.e. over the past 100 or so years when financial markets have been in existence, like everyone that isn't good and loses money would leave, and then there would be no one to make money off of. But lo and behold, that's not the case, and a vast, 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 I can't stress this enough, like 90% of money is not individuals, it's institutions. A vast bulk of capital in the markets continues to trade because there's alpha to find everywhere you look, and uh, there's just always opportunity uh, and uh, ways for everyone collectively to succeed. You know, if I convince a thousand people in a room to go buy some weird penny stock and then dump it later, like everyone there's gonna make money. People that buy it later might have a tougher time making money with it, but they can cut their losses quick or they can hedge their bets. Or uh, at the end of the day, you hold it for, say you hold it from, you know, 10 cents to $15 and the other person buys it at 15, sells it at fourteen fifty like, like that's not a huge deal, right? And so, and then you've got the upside of going to 20 or whatever. 
Um, kind of a, a convoluted example, but another one nonetheless where you have disproportionate risk-reward ratios once you have proper risk management, and, um, and it just creates a lot of opportunity. And when you have opportunity, like that's not a zero-sum game. And that's uh, really what I, I, I mean. I feel like once you start trading pre-market gainers, you see this so obviously where like you have stocks that just keep going up and up and up and up and up and it's you know it's like gee well let's see i could buy it and then just like you know sell it and then hmm you know i think it did pretty well there and then when you see stock prices going down like a lot of times what that is is people shorting it right and so they'll borrow the shares against their broker against some dude who's holding it in the long term and gets like a 0.4 percent rate on lended out shares or no rate on lended out shares and so it's just people making money shorting it and if you have like 70% of the market buying and everyone's 70% of the market making money, and then you have 70% of the market shorting, 70% of the market making money, like that's not a zero sum game. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Big thing to notice there. You'll see this a lot if you look at the call put ratios on a given asset on any day. You'll see like a bias towards calls if the stock's up or a bias towards puts if the stock's down. And so if you have more people buying, like that's a statistically significant percentage of individuals that are making money over those that are not in terms of that one specific hedge on one specific asset. Um, when you have a whole portfolio of those, you know, it just becomes easier to remove correlation and thereby increase overall long-term returns and stability and obviously decrease uh, volatility. So yeah, I don't know, really interesting. Um, and just something I've, I've, never heard a lot of people, never really anybody talk about. And I think it's incredibly stupid because it's one of the biggest myths I hear. So yeah, thanks guys. And have a awesome day. Bye. Want more stock market secrets? If so, go get your free copy of my best-selling book, 9 to Noon. You can get your free copy plus $11,176 of unannounced bonuses. It took me years to uncover completely for free at 9toNoonSecrets.com. Inside 9 to Noon, you find the top 38 secrets you can use to double your portfolio every two years and make upwards of 10% per trade daily.